If you're a smoker or dipper looking to make a change, you really only need one reason to do it. But with Zen Nicotine Pouches, you can find many. Zen is America's number one nicotine pouch. It's made with only six simple ingredients. Plus, Zen is the only nicotine pouch with a 10-day hassle-free trial. There are lots of options when it comes to nicotine satisfaction, but there's only one Zen. Find your Zen online or in a store near you at zen.com slash find. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Your first kiss was on camera with Fred (laughs) in the pilot. How did that bring some extra nerves for you? Well, especially because at the time I had a huge crush on him and I was just like so excited and so nervous. And I still remember after the first take when they said cut, the whole crew started applauding. And I don't know who started that, but it was mortifying. I mean, you can only imagine all the nerves, the anticipation. You know, you're about to have your first kiss. You've got a crush on the guy. You know, and then it finally happens. It's the most amazing moment ever. And it's like, (laughs) wait, that wasn't a private, that wasn't real. Oh, okay, right. (laughs) Hi, my name is Danica McKellar. I act in Christmas movies and I write math books for kids. Hello, my favorite listeners, and also my not-so-favorite listeners. Welcome to another episode of Off the Beat. I'm your host, as always, Brian Baumgartner. Now, as you just heard, my guest today is Danica McKellar, who, well, you might know from her time playing Winnie Cooper on The Wonder Years. Everyone who I have told that I have talked to Danica, has been so excited. Apparently, there are a lot of Wonder Years fans out there, or maybe you know her from the many rom-coms that she starred in. The Winter Palace, Christmas at Dollywood, with, of course, Dolly Parton. But there's also a subset of you who might know her for a totally different reason. That's right, Danica 
is going to outmath even me today. Yes, she does do the numbers. She literally has a mathematical theorem named after her. I mean, is that normal? It is certainly not normal on this podcast. And to think her big splash in the world of academics happened after she'd already kicked off her acting career. Danica has truly led an exceptional life, which has included things like writing an advice column for Teen Beat magazine and appearing in one of Avril Lavigne's music videos. I'm so excited for her to tell you all about it and so much more. So let's bring her on. My new best friend, Danica McKellar, everyone. Bubble and squeak, I love it. Bubble and squeak, I know. Bubble and squeak, I cook it every morning. Left over from the night before. What's up, Danica? Hey. Hey, Brian. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. Where are you? I am uh, at home, but okay. uh, I just got back from Canada. I just shot a Christmas movie. I It was so much fun. It actually comes out November 25th. Nice. Yeah, so I got my like Christmas stuff. <laughs> in the Christmas spirit. Uh, the movie's <laughs> called Christmas at the Drive-In, by the way, and it'll be on Great American Family. It's a new channel, very similar to Hallmark. I know all about it. We're going to talk about that and your your history with Christmas uh, <laughs> movies of of varying types. I want to I want to start back uh, with you though. You were you were born in La Jolla, is that yep. right? Yep. Very that. close to where I live now. Yeah. I mean, what was it like being born in paradise? Oh, I know. You just you just take it for granted and don't realize, oh, wait, La Jolla is this incredible vacation spot and right. to, to grow up there. And my dad still lives there. I go there all the time. Oh, really? Yeah. In fact, my family built the La Jolla Beach and Tennis Club a couple mm. generations ago. No way. Yeah, I grew up at the beach club. I mean, I have a lifetime membership just because I'm, I'm family. I'm actually a part owner, um, technically speaking. So yeah, what? that's my, my roots. <laughs> I need a discount. I need a friends and family <laughs> discount. I love that place. Uh, for those of you who don't know, this is a, it is, it is, it's private on the beach. It's one of like two in California. It is absolutely. And you think, well, what difference does that make? What, what the difference it makes is you can do anything you want. That's basically it. If you want to make a bonfire, you can have a bonfire. If you want to put a grill out, you can do that. It's an incredible place. I don't live quite close enough that it makes sense for me, but it is a well, it is a private a, club. But by the way, if you if you there's, it's a hotel as well, so you can stay at the hotel. You can stay there. That's right. You can stay yeah, there. You can stay there. And you get all the same benefits as a member. So that is what I have done. Yes. So that is very cool. I always tell people it's only bad if you don't like perfect. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Yes. Uh, but you. Fairly early on, age eight, you moved up to Los Angeles. Why did you leave Paradise? Um, so my so my parents divorced, and my mom was producing music videos of all things. She was a okay. professional dancer before, and work brought her to LA. And then my sister and I decided we kind of wanted to try acting, and she put us in acting classes at Lee Strasberg, like that same year, I think. And so very quickly, it 
like we started working and then I, I started doing commercials and things we both did, me and my sister. And about a year and a half later, I booked the Wonder Years and then I was working. I was 12. <laughs> yeah, wait a second. Okay. So the Lee Strasberg Institute, for those of you who don't know, there's like three who are considered to be the greatest theater teachers, Uta Hagen, Lee Strasberg. I mean, this is, this is serious business. And so like at age eight and nine, you're already taking classes there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it was, there were classes for kids, you know. Well, of course. But we loved it. We loved it. So, but my mom had a rule. She said, my, my mom's rule was this. She said, no projects that take us away from home okay. and no series. So I wasn't allowed to audition for any series. The part of Winnie Cooper was only supposed to be a guest role on the pilot episode only. So that's the only reason I was even allowed to audition for it. And when I got the job and we were midway through shooting, the producer said, hey, tell my mom, we really think that Danica and Fred had this really cool chemistry. So uh, we'd like to extend a continent. The network agrees. We want to, if I ever had to go to a network for that show, uh, they'd like to, to make her a series regular. My mom was really torn about it. I'm like, no, please, please, please. You know, because I, I loved working and I, was, I loved the group. And because the other moms, Joanne Savage, Jane Saviano, Marsha Hervey, they were very much about their kids and protecting their kids. They weren't that typical stage mom that you think of like moms shoving their kids in front of the camera and, you know, kissing after the producers. These moms were all like, no, our kids are kids first. And because of that, my mom said, you know, this might be an okay environment, but I'm getting a really expensive lawyer. And if there's any issue, we're going to have a loophole. And you tell me, you just say the word and you can just leave the show at any time. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to do that. But okay. <laughs> Your sister, Crystal. You mentioned uh, is acting with you as well. And presumably you both enjoyed it. Now, I read that both you and your sister were up for the role of Winnie Cooper. Now, was this did this cause issues when you got cast with the family at home? It was just a one time role. It wasn't like a big deal role that I got. It was was a one off. But they loved her so much. They said they were going to write a role for her. And they did. She played Becky Slater. She did, I think, nine or ten episodes. That's awesome. Yeah. So because you weren't auditioning for serious roles, right. this ends up becoming a really big deal for you. Do you remember anything about the audition? Uh, yes. I remember I remember we auditioned on a Thursday, callbacks for that Friday. And I remember there was like a group of, of girls all reading for the part of Winnie Cooper, including me and my sister. And the room got smaller and smaller. They kept having us come in and read again. And they said, okay, we're taking a dinner break. You come back and you're going to read with Fred Savage, the the boy who's playing the lead after dinner. I was like, okay. So we all went to dinner and there was a restaurant down below the studio city. And uh, I remember seeing Fred and, and wondering if that was the kid. And I was like, oh, he's cute. I wonder if he's the guy who I'll be reading with. And it was, I'm not sure I've ever said in this in an interview, but the, it came down to the three of us, me and my sister and this actress, I don't know her name, but she ended up with like a couple lines in the pilot episode. She's the girl for people who are super fans of the wonder years. Kevin is talking about, love you know junior high and there's this couple who's holding hands across his desk saying i love you i love you too and she was one of she was one of the three of us who uh were the final contenders for winnie cooper so of the three of us who were sitting there reading with fred after dinner we all ended up with roles on the show with roles on the show that's (laughs) awesome that i love that's a bts everybody that's a behind the scenes uh nugget um I did talk for a while to to Daniel Fischel about what I understand is the same with you that your your first kiss was on camera. Yes. With Fred <laughs> in the pilot. How did that bring some extra nerves oh, for yeah. you? 
Well, especially because at the time I had a huge crush on him and I was just like so excited and so nervous. And I still remember after the first take when they said cut, the whole crew started applauding. And I don't know who started that, but it was mortifying. I mean, you can only imagine all the nerves, the anticipation. You know, you're about to have your first kiss. You've got a crush on the guy, you know, and then it finally happens. It's the most amazing moment ever. And it's like, <laughs> wait, that wasn't a private, that wasn't real. That wasn't, oh, okay, right. Yeah. <laughs> Did you did you think for the rest of your life every time you kissed someone there would it would break out in applause all around you? Well, I remember when I had my first real kiss. Right. It was two years, no, a year and a half later, uh, with Jeremy Miller, by the way, who was the little boy on Growing Pains. Yes. That was my first kiss. He was my first little boyfriend. Wow. I was fourteen and he was thirteen. Okay. And and uh, it was actually at my dad's house in La Jolla. Okay. They were, they, were, they were down there for some reason. And so we all hung out and then we were at my dad's house and we had a moment alone. And, and I remember thinking, wait, is this going to be my first kiss? And it was like, oh, this is so different because I don't know. Oh, right. shooting, You know, it's, it's, not, happen. it's not scripted. It's not scripted. It may or may not happen. <laughs> yeah. So that was the. Um, yeah, so no, I didn't think there were going to be cameras, but I was like stunned at how odd it felt to not actually know how it was going to go down. <laughs> how it was going to go down. Yes. yes. Um, you are on the Wonder Years, basically your entire teenage years, right? Yes. Yeah. 12 to 18. What was it like for you growing up? In And this is a huge show at this time and everybody is talking about it and everybody is talking about you and and about Fred at the time. What was it like for you growing up in the spotlight with all of that attention during what for most is awkward teenage years? I was not in touch with it. And that's the truth. I was not in touch with it at all. At some point, point, I think I was probably 16 and and someone on set referred to me as America's sweetheart. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? I I was very busy with school and work and family life. And my mom, both my parents always emphasized the importance of basically everything over showbiz. So health, family, school, and then sure, showbiz. But that's that was the priority scheme. In fact, when the Wonder Years got nominated for the first time for an Emmy, in fact, we won that year. I wasn't there because there was a river trip, like a river rafting trip scheduled with my dad and my sister. That and he had a really busy work schedule and we couldn't move it. And so we went on the trip. I mean, and it was kind of a it was like, well, we have this invitation. We could go to the Emmys or we could go on this river rafting trip. My parents decided together, no, the trip is more important. And I remember. Being in this tiny little motel room in Oregon, we're going to get in the Rogue River the next day. And it was like a TV from the 1970s. I don't know where, this tiny little screen. And we watched the Wonder Years win the Emmy. And we jumped up and down the bed and we're like, yay, we won. And we went to sleep, got up at like five in the morning and hit the river and had the trip of our lives. I mean, I remember picking blackberries on the side of the river with my dad and my sister. And it's some of the most precious memories. So that kind of thing, you know, that's, that was my life. My life was all the, all the regular stuff. And then I went to work and I loved it, but it wasn't the focus. I didn't go to Hollywood parties. I mean, there'd be like ABC affiliate parties here and there that we'd go to with my mom. You know what I mean? But I was never, like I was never in that scene where I would have been offered drugs or gotten into the wrong group. Just, that just wasn't my reality. I was going to a a challenging school and it took up a lot of time. And so that was my, that's my focus. Were you doing set school as well? Yes. So any day that I missed, I actually, I just take the homework and do it on set. And we had a fantastic teacher, David Combs. He was great. He was great at everything except for math. Like he was fine. But when I got into pre-calculus and stuff, they brought in somebody else. So I had my own personal calculus tutor 
I mean, in some ways you could say that being on the Wonder Years helped me in my math education and ultimately, yeah, I became, I don't want to jump ahead, but, uh, but like I became a math major at UCLA. They loved math so much. And I had all that wonderful private tutoring for calculus. Um, I love that you went river rafting instead of going to the Emmys. I love that, that your parents were trying to keep that normalcy and put their importance on, on family and those, and those experiences. I do want to ask you though, what are some of your favorite memories from your teenage years that, that either were outside of the show or, or happened because of the show? My gosh, it's a huge question. Uh, I mean, I went to prom, you know, and, uh, I would go to the homecoming games. Uh, the producers of the wonder years were really, really good about like, if we had some event coming up, they would try to work around it. They weren't always able to, but they always tried. So it was really right. special. Uh, Ken Topolsky, um, and Bob Brush, they were just wonderful and really, really cared about us being kids. So that made a huge, huge difference. And I remember being really grateful to them on several occasions. So that that's a happy memory. It seems to me, though, as big as the show got, as much as your parents wanted to shelter you and give you, as you say, a normal life, the experience at what became Harvard Westlake, you must have been getting some attention there. Was that positive or was that a negative? You know, it's in L.A. I mean, it's not that big a deal. Tori Spelling was a couple of years ahead of me. It's not a big deal. Okay. You know, in LA, it was every now and then somebody would have a problem with me, but it was really not a big deal. And the guys definitely stayed away. I don't know if it's just intimidating or what, but <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I did have a boyfriend eventually, but not from school. Right. So yeah, it felt pretty normal. Okay. And I'll say because we were not one of those shows that taped in front of a live studio audience, there I only worked on the days that I was in scenes. Right. And if you really watch the show. Winnie Cooper wasn't in that many episodes until the very final season. The sixth season, I was in almost every one. But I would like have a couple of weeks where I was just in school. And then I'd have a week where I was only worked two or three days. I would say I was in my regular school at least half the time. Mm. Now, it, 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 it was an interesting skill set to go back and forth and back and forth. Right. Sometimes I think it would have been a little easier if I just known kind of what the deal was. But I'd be in school and they'd say, okay, we got a history test next Friday. And I wouldn't know if I was going to be there for it or not. And I remember when I got to UCLA, how much of a relief it was to be like, oh, wait, I can like set my own schedule. I can be dependable. I know what next week looks like. Right. Yeah. When you start hearing things on set about being America's sweetheart or whatever, when you started to realize how important that relationship was to people outside of it, do you think that that increased the pressure of you portraying it or how did that affect specifically your performance, do you think? I don't think I was aware enough of it to have it affect my performance, but it did affect the way I related to the world, especially when the show was done. I mean, even through today, having a certain sense of responsibility to people because of the character that I played. I mean, I'm very similar to Winnie Cooper, to be quite honest, but it also just, I, so I did have a sense of responsibility the whole time. It just didn't affect how I Played the role, but it affected me in the world. Like I remember, where I was, um, I was probably fourteen or fifteen, and I was offered a contract to represent some sort of granola bar, and it was a lot of money. And I looked at the ingredients, and I'm like, "Well, there's sugar in here, and I don't like we don't need sugar." And my mom was like really proud of me. I said, "No, I can't. I can't tell people to eat this because they might listen to me, and this isn't what I would eat, so that's not healthy." <laughs> so uh, we said no. 
And I remember my mom was like so proud because of just no understanding that I had a responsibility to the public and I wanted to to be a good leader and take this gift of being the public eye and do something positive. I mean, I look, and I certainly continued that. I, I love mathematics, but what I do with that now is I don't go in a corner and do mathematics by myself. I have all these books to help kids. You know, I know that, that the parents know me from the Wonder Years. Some of the kids know me from my Christmas movies, but the parents definitely know me from the Wonder Years. And so to be able to take my position as this public figure and people, somebody who people looked up to, a character that people looked up to and say, oh, well, I can do something positive with that and help these parents with, you know, their kids' math issues and, and help do something with that. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late everyone, there was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry though, he's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. 
We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, you've transitioned beautifully. I have not spoken for sure in all of my guests to a math genius until today. Um, you go to UCLA. Well, first off, did you make a conscious decision that you were going to take a hiatus from acting? Like you were going to go to school and focus on school? No. Okay. So I first went to UCLA with the idea of being a film major and learning the other side. And, and for the first year, I still did jobs. I did a movie with a week for NBC, and I did like an episode of Babylon 5. And I was doing things here and there. But it was funny because I realized, wait a minute, because it it's so stressful going back and forth. Not Again, not knowing if you're going to be there for something, leaving right. town, coming back, trying to make up assignments, find out what the work was, get ahead of the curve, all that stuff, really, really tough. And I was like, wait, so in the Wonder Years and in high school, like the law tells you you have to go to high school. Well, now I'm an adult. I don't even have to be at school if I don't want to be. And I don't have to take any of these jobs because they're all one-off jobs. I'm not, it's not a series. Like, what am I doing to myself? So about a year into it, and I, and I kept getting incompletes. The professors weren't letting me make up the exams. I'm like, what? Why wouldn't you just let me take it again? I'm like, well, we just don't do that. I'm like, okay. Different ballpark. This is a different, this is a different uh, landscape here. So I decided to take a break at that point and just focus on schoolwork. And at that point, by that point, I'd taken a math class. Okay. It was multivariable calculus, and it was uh, a tough class. I was I was so nervous about it because I hadn't taken math since high school. It's been almost a year since I'd taken any math. Well, I still had all my high school math notes because that's just the kind of person I am. <laughs> and I studied them, learned all the trigonometric identities for calculus, for doing integrals and all that stuff. And so I get to multivariable calculus, and I was like really prepared and had no idea that I was so like overly prepared for this class. It was a class of like 163 people. And I remember the first midterm exam. I studied so hard for that. I memorized everything. I knew everything. And yet the test was ridiculously difficult. I got like a 44 or something out of 100. And um, as it turns out, it was a weeder test. The professor graphed the scores on the chalkboard. 44 was by itself. And there were a couple of 15s. And then it was um, like nine and below. And this is a class of 163 people. I'm looking at my test. I'm looking up. I'm like, wait, that's... That's me. I might be getting the number wrong, but it was it was like it was all by itself and everything was below. It might have been twenty two. It was twenty two out of forty. It was twenty two out of forty. I said I'm getting mixed up. Anyway, okay. the point is I'm a numbers person, so this matters at all to me. Uh, getting the numbers right. So I I was like, 
was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And the professor like pulled me aside afterwards and said, like, you've got a gift. I mean, you, you're really good at math. I'm like, I don't, I studied really hard. I don't know. But as, as it turns out, that's part of it. Studying really hard and wanting to study hard and wanting to become a master at something, that's part of it. It's not like you're just a math genius and so it's just easy. That's not what makes you a good math student. Yeah, but hold on a no, second. I, since <laughs> I stopped talking about the wonder years and started talking about math, yeah. your energy has changed. So there is something inside you I that this it. excites I you. Love you love it. It's different from being a genius. I love it. I want to learn it. I want to study it. It's a puzzle. It's it's beautiful. These proofs are beautiful. I was just reading a book. She's talking about, she's trying to like bridge mathematics and literature. And she says, if you happen to be a mathematician, then you already have poetry in your soul. And I was like, yes, she gets it. She gets it. Because math is beautiful. When you are doing these proofs and you understand, it's like crystallized beauty. I don't even know how to, but you don't get to that until you've gotten through calculus and gotten through all that stuff. So and that's all fine and good. And I, I would hope that some people might get to that who may not have having been exposed to me talking about it. Yes. No, I'm with you. But just hold on first. She's a three-time New York Times bestseller, by the way. So she knows what she's talking about. But Four times. Four times. <laughs> Our research was wrong. <laughs> I'm going to yell at somebody later. You have a mathematical theorem with your name on it. The Chase, is that right? Chase McKellar Wynn. Chase McKellar Wynn theorem. Mm -hmm. She has a theorem. All right. You got to talk slower and you got to explain elevator talk. What, what is the, what does the theorem relate to? It relates to a two dimensional mathematical model of magnetic material. And it has to do with temperature and based on a temperature, whether or not magnetic material will hold its magnetic charge as you pull the magnets farther and farther away that's kind of the based on temperature based on temperature so the colder it is it's mathematical physics really the colder it is the longer they'll stay magnetized the lodestone but it's a two-dimensional model of it and it's, it's kind of amazing it, and it only can point in four directions the electric the uh, the poles which is not anything like the real world but what's really cool about math is that it's the language of the sciences right and it's amazing even with a two-dimensional model of the magnetic material you can still get a lot from it but if you look at the paper, it's not like a bunch of pictures of magnets. It's all this crazy looking math. You're like, what is all this? And to be honest, I mean, I did that in 1998 during college. It's a long time ago. And I look at the paper now and I'm like, kind of, sort of. Do you have it there? Oh, that's it. No, I, listen, I, here's the crazy thing. I kind of understood what you said. Yes. Well, I, I kind of, I kind of understood what you said. Physics is way easier than math. Because mm. you can like, look at it in the real world. There's something right. you can grab onto. Yeah. Tangible. But uh, if you if you don't, if you want to be kind of not feeling as on, on top of this, uh, let me just tell you the title. That's Percolation and Give States Multiplicity for Ferromagnetic Ashton Teller Models in Two Dimensions. It's ferromagnets, not regular magnets. Anyway. All right. What well, you lost me. But I, I, I could tell you wanted to be lost. I think you, you were happy when you were lost. I, I did. <laughs> I you're, no, you're exactly right. Here's a fun <laughs> fact for everybody here. Now many people have an, an Erdos number? Is that right? Erdish. Erdish. It's actually pronounced Erdish. Erdish. Okay. So Danica has an Erdish number. Okay. Do you know who Paul Erdish is? Uh, he's a Hungarian mathematician, of course. <laughs> he is a very prolific mathematician. Much like, okay, so let's, I think we should start with the Kevin Bacon number. Because Kevin Bacon number, that's what people know about, right? Yes. Nobody knows the Erdish number. The, yes. People have Kevin Bacon number. That's. That's how many degrees away from Kevin Bacon you are. Right. So I've been working with Kevin Bacon, so I've got a Bacon number of two. 
Yes. Um, yes. And my Erdish number, he, he wrote many, many mathematical papers. I, my, my Erdish number is four. So together, my Bacon Erdish number, there are only a few people who have. That's a what Erdish I'm saying. Number. I have, yes. If I work with Kevin Bacon at some point, which I really must do, then I can bring it down to five. I think I'm tied with Natalie Portman right now. I'm not totally sure. She has an Erdish number? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Natalie Portman? Mm-hmm. Not, not, not what's her number? What's her, what's her number? She's also six, but uh, but I'm not sure. I haven't looked in years. It was years ago that I saw that. I was like, hmm. Because she's written, no, she, she went to Harvard and she did something really smart. It wasn't math. It was something else, but it was something in the sciences. So this math person did something with this science and that science person did something over there. And so it's still linked her back to Paul Erdish. So you can crush her in math. I mean, maybe, but I need to. <laughs> She's super smart. She might do calculus on the side for all I know. It's all about a competition for me. Um, so, yes, you have begun, oh, not just begun. You've been doing it for, for quite a while now, writing children's books related to math four-time New York Times best-selling author. Why? What was missing in this category? Well, so in the year 2000, I was I was invited to speak in front of Congress about the importance of women in mathematics. I had just graduated from college, and it was known that, oh, Winnie the math whiz, okay? And it's actually kind of a funny story. So this commission wanted to get more money for scholarships for women in college to entice more women to study STEM careers. So they invited me to testify, basically, about the importance of women in mathematics so they could get more money for this thing. But I wasn't really thinking of it in that way. I was like, yeah, I'm going to help solve this problem in this country. So I read the 100-page report, okay, 100 pages, and it was detailed. And in this document, in this 100-page document, it was clear that middle school was the time when girls started to shy away from math. That's when their confidence really started dropping, and then their grades would drop after that. And I was like, wow, this is really, this is, this is crazy. This is kids need support in middle school. I'm like, it's too late by college. So I get up there. And in my four minutes that I was given to give a speech, I say all this. And I say, look, it's too late by college. <laughs> so unwittingly, like, like ruining their, their whole plan for inviting me out there. Um, and, uh, and, and they didn't get the money, by the way. <laughs> it's my fault. So I said, look, it's too late by then. But middle school is the time. Here's the other thing. My dad loves to, to, to tell people because he was there. He came with me. In the executive summary, which is what the Congress people usually read, because how they're not going to read a 100-page report on every single issue they're looking at, right? It wasn't in there. The thing about middle school was not in the executive summary. So this commission had paid for all this research and put this paper together, but then they put the argument that they wanted to try to get their money, because I'm sure that's how politics work. It's fine, whatever. Right. So, so I tell them, I say, I say, you know what? The information that I have to tell you, the most important stuff wasn't in the executive summary. And my dad says that the congressman, Puts glasses down and says, well, why don't you enlighten us, young lady? I said, I was like, no problem. So I'm like, go on and tell them. I said, like, look, middle school is the time. The grades start to drop. And this country is fourth grade when you start to see it. But really by eighth grade, this is the no problem. I said, math. I said, if you have, you have money to help a math education, give it to middle school teachers. You need better middle school teachers. A lot of them are underpaid. You know, they're like gym teachers who then are, are pulled in because they're, they're low on math teachers. We need to attract more math teachers to middle school. This is when we really need that support. Also, math needs better PR. And I said, and I will be working on that. I pledge to you that I will do everything that I can to improve the image that people have of math in this country. Because when you you are growing up, and I even talked about, like on the wonder years, it's that time in life when you're worried about who you are and trying to figure out who you are. Well, if you're like, I don't know who I am, but you're seeing all these stereotypes about mathematicians going, well, but I'm not 
I'm not that. I'm not a math nerd. So I'm going to just not look at that. Plus, we hear that math is too hard. It's too boring. It's just for boys. It's whatever. It's, it's other. It doesn't apply to our lives. It's not relevant. I'm like, this is all untrue. But let me, you know, let me like work on that. So I told him, I will pledge to do what I can. So at that point, I was like, okay, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. But I started a website. And then it was in July of 2005 when I did a lingerie spread for Stuff Magazine because I was 30. And I was like, hey, I'm going to show that you can still look hot at 30, which is so funny now in my 40s. Um, so it was very classy, very tasteful. But that same month, in July 2005, the New York Times decided to do a story about my math paper that I'd written years before. So it was this great article that came out. And so those two things came out the same month. And it just kind of showed this duality, you know, like breaking stereotypes about who's good at math. So I had a couple of different literary agents reach out to me and to my manager saying, hey, we would, we think that Danica should write a book of some sort. And at that point, I'd been doing so much studying about middle school. I was like, I know exactly the book I want to write. And it was this one. Math doesn't suck. Math doesn't, math doesn't suck. How to survive middle school math without losing your mind or breaking a nail. So this is the book that came out in 2007 and a runaway bestseller, like crazy, like couldn't keep it off the shelf, kept having to reprint it because this book, it teaches fractions and decimals and percents and, you know, proportions, solving for X, all that stuff. But it does it like a girlfriend talking to another girlfriend. Right. And it was, it's friendly. It's accessible. I have real world examples. Every single chapter shows you how you might use that in real life. So I had to, I, you know, tackle key. It doesn't have to just be for boys. You can be a glamorous girl if you want and still be good at math. Picture math as the thing that's making your brain sharp and preparing you to be in charge of your finances, preparing your brain to be good at problem solving. And then you can tackle anything, any goal you have. But aspire, if you want to be glamorous, aspire to be the woman in four inch heels holding her briefcase, walking down, you know, Wall Street and going to a super important job. Like make that the type of glamorous that you aspire to. And so that whole message was, it just hit a nerve. It just struck a chord and everyone seemed to get on board. And I was like person of the week on ABC World News and like this crazy time. And I thought that was just going to be the one book that I would write. Well, 11 books later, here we are. I'm writing book number 12 right now. And um, so next one was uh, Kiss My Math, showing pre-algebra who's boss. And then I have Hot X, the algebra book. And I've got Girls Get Curves, Geometry Takes Shape. So it goes all the way up through high school geometry. And then I had so many people saying, please write little kid books. We want math support even younger. And it's like, you know, it's true. Even though you might, middle school is the time when you really see it falling apart, the problem starts sooner. And you can't, there's no time that's too soon to start showing kids that math is part of your life. Yes. Part of your life, it's friendly. So this book, uh, 10 Magic Butterflies, it teaches different ways of making 10 from two numbers. It's a story of these. 10 flowers who one by one, they ask a fairy if they can become a butterfly and they do. And then, but in the meantime, it's teaching you how to make 10 from two numbers, one and nine, two and eight, three and seven. And it takes you through the whole thing. So, and Four then and six. very good, Kevin. Five and, and five. This is the book that I can't believe I just called you Kevin. Do you know how many times people call me Winnie? Like they call me Winnie and I'm like, I can't, but I forgive them. You must be in the same space. I know it's all, it's totally, <laughs> right? it's totally fine. I can't believe I just did that to you. I'm mortified. Yeah, it's all right. Oh, stop. The crazy thing is this just happened to me today, right? You know, you go into a Starbucks and they make you, and, and especially if they're playing it very cool, yeah, and you, yeah. you know, I'm not thinking about it. And I give my name, which is yeah, Brian. No, I, know, by the way, I, know. I know, I know, I know. And then I'm standing there and you hear names start to be called up. Kevin? Yeah. I don't turn around because I'm like, oh, no, I mean, right. clearly 
then I turn around and they're looking at me and it's like, all right, it's written on the cup. Yeah, yes, exactly. It's on they the cup. They just wanted to call you Kevin. Exactly. Because they just love your character. And that's why you have to remember it. People love the character so much. Anyway, what I was saying was, this is the most recent like teaching book. It's the Times Machine. And it might be the one that I'm maybe the most proud of. It came out in 2020, which is just in time. So many kids were falling behind already. Uh, teaches multiplication and division for third and fourth graders to help me- memorize multiplication facts. And, and so I have this whole section where I do like a story and a poem and things for all the like difficult ones. Like, for example, six times seven. Do you know that one? I know them all. I'm actually not yeah. bad. 42. Very good. Go, okay, hit, so here's, go ahead. Go ahead. Quiz me. No, no, no. I'm going to. Now, here's the story of Mr. Mouse. Uh, Mr. Mouse loves cheese because what mouse doesn't love cheese? Well, imagine Every Mr. Mouse. mouse eats a six-sided block of cheese every day for a week. So that's seven, right? Six times seven. Well, by the end of the week, Mr. Mouse is pretty full and farty too. I got what you did. I see what see you there? did there. Kids will then remember <laughs> that six times seven is 42. This is what this book does. The Times Machine. Well, I got to tell you something with all sincerity and all joking aside, I have a second grader and she is in love with math Oh, that's amazing! and is already at the start of second grade is already doing third grade math. The times machine sounds like for her, Yes, I'm going to get her the times machine. We'll do it together. She was just doing her eights with me oh, the other day. Great. We do math together. She teaches me daily. So I want to say to you, one, I appreciate what you're doing. And I appreciate particularly as a father of girls that you are doing this for the girls. And I hope she sticks with it. And you know what? If she doesn't and she finds something else, that's amazing too. But I want you to know I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, the Times Machine. And by the way, for whatever sort of the little kid books all the way up through the Times Machine, those are very co-ed. Right. It's really starting with math doesn't suck. And by the way, all the books can be found at mckellarmath.com. mckellarmath.com. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Is he breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. 
There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <gasps> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of... dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You still have a math career going on, but... No, math author career. A math author career. Yeah, yeah but... Yeah, proving the theorem. Any, right. Anytime you have a theorem, you're an active math, <laughs> mathy. What brought you back to your acting career? I mean, you have so many credits, I can't even begin to, to name them. You've been doing this for so long. But also a voiceover career as well, doing things like Young Justice, DC Superhero Girls, Generation uh, Rex. Um, what... Acting on camera or voiceover? What do you on camera. on camera? I love I love them both, but on camera, I I just there's so much more you can do. There's so much more innuendo, and there's a lot of subtlety. But look, voiceover is super fun, and you're done right away. It's fast, right. and you get to fully be a character that maybe you wouldn't normally get to play otherwise. I mean, Young Justice, my character Miss Martian has gone so many places, dark places, places that you know that I haven't gotten to do on camera because I don't come off. 
that way. Like I'm, you know, wholesome girl next door. I mean, I always have been and I always will be. And, it was, and I love it. I'm, I'm very grateful. But you asked me what brought me back. Um, it was missing connecting with people. Uh-huh. Math is so much fun, but you're by yourself most of the time. And I missed sharing. I would even just try to have lunch with my mom and talk to her about what I was doing. And I would have to keep defining all the words I was using. And it just by the time we finished lunch, I had just finally finished all the definitions and couldn't even really, by that point, she'd forgotten the first one because it's just not, <laughs> it's a totally different language yes. when you get up into the high, crazy, you know, specific math stuff. So writing the books also turned out to be an amazing way of connecting with people about math. But long before that, I'd already gone back to acting and um, I'd done a few independent films and then the West Wing came up and I got to read for Aaron Sorkin and summer of that audition uh, he goes i'm crazy about you and i was like i'm crazy about you too that's <laughs> <laughs> an amazing moment i did like nine episodes uh for the west wing and it was just fantastic and then and then i got really into the math book writing for a while and then i had a baby and then i a year and a half after that got divorced and kind of restarted my life and moved in with my mom and then um yeah i think i started doing i started doing hallmark movies in 2015 yeah and i did like 17 movies there in the space of like six years or something and started your love of the christmas movies yes absolutely christmas at dollywood with dolly parton (laughs) did you film at dollywood for a few days of it yeah we shot mostly in vancouver and then a few days at dollywood which and it was during christmas too so they don't turn on the christmas lights until the beginning of november and these movies come out like that movie came out the beginning of december so we shot the entire movie before and then had like a couple days at Dollywood. They had to just cut and stick in the movie to be able to have that air on time. Insane. I was like, how is this going to happen? What was it like working with Dolly? She is such a professional. She's so, she's just, she's larger than life in the best way. She walked into the room, this big theater, which is where we shot the first stuff with her. And she was like, Merry Christmas, everybody. And you just, everyone was happy. I mean, everyone's like, wait, when's Dolly? She's getting here soon. Okay, well, yeah, okay, Dolly's coming soon. Okay. It was all this anticipation. She walked in. Put everyone at ease. And she also knows how to make things sound good no matter what she's saying. Okay. So even if it's like threatening, which there's this one moment where so it was, it was on my close-up and she was walking past the camera to be to be over her shoulder onto me. And there was a cord where she had to walk. And the DP said, um, I don't want you to trip on that. She goes, No, you don't, honey. <laughs> <laughs> right right so so good she's so, she's so good and anyway so she i i i absolutely adore her uh that was 2019 and then it was last year that i made the move from hallmark channel to great american family and the bill abbott so he he left hallmark and went to great american family and he kind of was starting another basically it's another hallmark i mean he's creating what he created before he like revived the whole Christmas movie genre. And then he really gave me this whole section of my career that I love so much. And it's been so much fun and playing these roles in these movies where everything is going to work out. is wonderful. I just, I just love giving people happiness and giving them, it's not, it's not just an escape too. People talk about this as being an escape, but it's more than that. It's a reminder of the good side of human nature. Mm. In the Christmas movies in particular, and one of the things that Bill Abbott is always really uh, specific about is you always want to talk about traditions within the Christmas movie. And it's a reminder to people to, oh, you know what? It's good to have little Christmas traditions, however small they might be, especially for kids, because it tells them what season they're in. And it tells, it's a grounding effect. 
and it connects people. It connects the family together to have traditions, whatever they are. So these movies give ideas for traditions as well. And, and just kind of hearing that word makes you go, oh, right. It's Christmas time. We should do a tradition. Right. I, I love that. November 25th. Yes. Uh, your latest Christmas movie, Christmas at the Drive-In. By the way, how many of your viewers do you think have been to a drive-in? <laughs> Don't know. <laughs> I, you know what? Honestly, but, I mean. Have you? I have not been to. Well, okay. I have because of the movie, but I'm not sure if that counts. No, that doesn't. That doesn't. <laughs> and, and to be honest, they built the drive-in. It was a working, it's a working drive-in. Like they built it, a projector and I, they built oh. the whole big screen and the whole thing. Is I mean, it still I, up? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but they, it should be because they, they, well, they built it on the, on the back lot up in Canada that they have. So I don't know, but, um, I feel like I've been to a drive-in once, like with my dad a long time ago. Yeah. I think so. When I was a kid. Yeah. But this is a 1950s style drive-in with decor. And the story is that it was built in the 1950s. So my co-star played by Neil Bledsoe, his father owned the drive-in. And his father passed away last year, and now it's his, but he doesn't live there anymore. Hasn't been profitable for years, so he's going to just sell it, and he's selling it to a place that's going to knock it down and build a distribution center. And you know, my character like loves the drive-in and wants to to save it. I'm a lawyer, a property lawyer, so I get into the weeds. And the thing is, he and I used to be high school sweethearts. There you so go. So we have to um, fight it out. And then, and then the historic commission, they say, look. We'll give you three weeks to prove the drive-in is more important to the town than the distribution center. And they say to Holden, my co-star, if she has to prove that it that it's more important, then you have to prove it isn't. And then we'll judge it from there. So that's that's the setup for the movie. And it's really fun and sweet. And it's filled with all sorts of just nostalgia, both because we're at this 1950s style drive-in and also because there's all this memory of the relationship that they had as high school sweethearts and how things have changed and it's great. And I know, I know my fans, the fans of the Wonder Years are definitely fans of nostalgia. So Great American Family Channel, November 25th is the Friday, the day after Thanksgiving. There you go. And I will be live tweeting with that broadcast. Well, you know, it is the most wonderful time of the year. Yes. I prefer it starting on exactly the day that this movie is coming out. Yes. So <laughs> I, I, that's what I prefer. We're a little early right now. Uh, but by the time we get there, I'm ready. I'm all in. All right. I got to ask you about one more thing. You I, Is this math or is this entertainment or is this both? I understand you were a judge on my good buddy show, Eric Stone Street, Domino Masters. How did that come about? What did you learn? That was so much fun. Yeah. yeah so I, I, I heard they wanted to have a meeting with me and um, they sent me a video. So first of all, Domino Masters, for those who don't know, it's a, a show that was on Fox this past summer, still on Hulu if people want to check it out. It's a competition reality show, kind of like Lego Masters, but instead of Legos, it's dominoes. And yes. the thing about dominoes, you build these huge structures with dominoes and also chain reaction machines. So it'll be, you know, a ball rolling down inclined plane and knocks into a domino and then the domino thing swirls around and then hits something else and then a baseball bat comes around and falls down or whatever. It's math. It's, it's a lot of physics, a lot of math and physics. Well, you don't, you don't have to use numbers so much, but it's, the, it's, it's physics. Come on. Sure. I'm trying to. Well, yeah, and, that, and that was actually my challenge. <laughs> when they, when they, when I had my like audition, they sent me a video of a domino structure and chain reaction machine knocking down and they wanted me to like, you know, judge it. And ahead of time I'm thinking like, 
what kind of mathy things can I say? <laughs> I was like, as a mathematician, I appreciate that there were 20,000 dominoes used because they did tell me how many dominoes there were. Right. <laughs> it's just not, it became a joke with me and my son. He was like, yes, well, as a mathematician, so we would start every sentence with, as a mathematician, I think this book weighs a certain amount of pounds. Yes, you know, whatever. So, but I, I did talk about the physics of it a little bit. <laughs> I thought, well, I'm not really a physics expert. I'm a, you know, math more than physics, but I studied about the angle that the dominoes hit and how much faster it goes if they're closer together. Uh, I, I read, watched all those videos and, and, and become kind of an expert. And I did, a, I actually even talked about math and some, like, how you can prove with physics of the calculus that the physics of um, a catapult, 45 degrees is the, is the best angle for the maximum distance. And so I, I put all that stuff in. But as you may know, in reality shows, they use like a fifth or right. like a tenth of what you actually say. So some of it made in, a lot of it didn't. But yes, it was a lot of, a lot of me figuring out well, what's the physics angle, what's the mathy angle on this. <laughs> but I also made my audition about this. I said, I, this was a great knockdown. But you know what it was missing? It's a story. I want a beginning and middle and end, just like good choreography in a dance. You want to have a sense of where the story is taking yes. you. Have, have a climax and then have a resolution as, as opposed to just a lot of really cool things being knocked down. And that became part of the show. One of the criteria was, okay, what what's the story? So that became, I became sort of the dual like physics slash storyteller expert. And like Vernon Davis, he was all about the art and just the aesthetic of it. He was, that was his main focus. And then Steve Price, the other judge, of course, was, he knows a lot about dominoes because he is a domino artist. And we right. are not. Well, this is this is you. This is an artist. This is yeah. a a mathematician. It's fascinating because I don't know. Someone created your left and right brains to be of equal strength, which is very strong. So, thank you so much for coming to talk to me. I don't know that I fully grasped the math, but I think I pretty much did. I think we're pretty. Yeah, you got you got you know. Six times seven equals forty-two. Then you were fast, yeah, I, and I got, I got all that. I got all that. <laughs> well, I'm excited for your daughter. I, it sounds awesome. And what I, I want to say about your daughter, you said something I didn't get a chance to address, and that is, you said even if she finds something else that she likes instead, that's fine too. And yes, here's the thing about math: it trains your brain to be a problem-solving brain, and it helps you to distinguish between well, what do I know and what do I think? What am I assuming? It is the most to me, the most useful skill for a kid to learn. It has nothing to do with whether or not they're going to use math in their career because they will use math in their finances. They will not. Kids who are afraid of numbers tend to be adults who avoid numbers. And you know who doesn't avoid numbers? Credit card companies, whoever's on the other end of a contract that you're about to sign, all that, all those details, the devil's in the details. So be good at math, feel confident about it. And then if you use it, if you love it, great, you know, because you're, you're going to use it. Love it or don't love it, but know that you can do it though. And that's what I want for kids. But yeah. like, you know what, but I can do this and to get used to doing challenging things. Because when you're, when you practice doing challenging things, then when another challenge comes along, whatever it is, whatever category of life it's in, you'll learn to say to yourself, well, it's a good thing I got me on my side because this looks tough. It's a good thing I'm here. And that's all throughout my books. These math books, math doesn't suck, kiss my math. There's all sorts of this positive reinforcement and, and teaching kids that when things, when you're struggling, that's good because that's like going to the gym for your brain. And when you lift a heavy, heavy weight like, uh, like that's when you're getting stronger to sort of celebrate all that so tell your daughter because i want her to embrace the idea of doing challenging things as a good thing on its face like that's just by itself just for the fact that it's challenging that is the benefit that is one of the great things about math makes you stronger awesome danica thank you so much <laughs> i so you. appreciate you taking the time to come on and good luck 
with Christmas at the drive-in. Thank you so much. Danica, that was incredible. Happy holidays to you. Good luck on the movie. I know so many will be watching. Thank you for coming on the podcast today. I can't wait to see what you come up with next. And to you, listeners, even my not-so-favorite ones, thank you for stopping by. If you haven't already, give us a follow on Instagram at at offthebeat. Review us on Apple Podcasts. Tell a couple of friends about it. And, uh, and if you do that, well, then I'll be back next Tuesday with another great guest. And probably I'll be back whether you do it or not. We'll see you next week. Off the Beat is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Baumgartner, alongside our executive producer, Ling Lee. Our senior producer is Diego Tapia. Our producers are Liz Hayes, Hannah Harris, and Emily Carr. Our talent producer is Ryan, Papa Zachary, and our intern is Sammy Katz. Our theme song, Bubble and Squeak, performed by the one and only Creed Bratton. Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and I'm a journalist. Join me on my new podcast, But We Loved, coming May 15th, where queer elders recount the amazing history they've lived through. In the middle of Wall Street, they stopped traffic. They were doing a die-in. And in the process, share little gems of wisdom for the next generation. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself, 
You can listen to But We Loved May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 